This is the Euroscopic Podcast, a weekly roundup of analysis and insight about what happened in Europe, what is happening, and what might happen. In partnership with the EU Observer, I'm William Bucroft. I write the Schland Substack newsletter all about Germany. And I am Martin Gag from Berlin. Um, here we go. And today I'm actually based in uh, Augsburg, southern Germany, where it's sunny and a little bit nicer. Today is Monday, February 12th. 2024. So some events may have changed by the time you hear this podcast, wherever your ears go for podcasts. You can also subscribe to our own Euroscopic Substack for free. And of course, do check out euobserver.com for our podcast and all the latest news from around the European Union. Martin, another week. Uh, for some, you know, I have this strange feeling that, you know, everything changes. There's always news, but it kind of also always feels the same. Uh, new iterations of the same thing. What's kind of come across your radar in the, since we last talked? Well, the weather is still miserable in Berlin. Things um, are not necessarily changing, but they're becoming uh, more interesting in terms. They're evolving. They're evolving. Um, turns out that Alexander Stubb uh, is again president or now president elect of Finland, uh, a conservative that was, uh, you know, joking for the top job at the EPP. Uh, and it's interesting, among other things, because he's now an old-timer. He was uh, a very important ally of center um, conservatives or center-right uh, in the European Union. And now, in the back in the president of Finland, he is bound to be uh, a fairly powerful figure in the coming European Council and Parliament. Um, so I think that that is actually pretty significant news. The other piece of news is uh, Europe's deal with Mauritania, uh, an immigration deal, uh, which has some of the trappings of the former Tunisia deal. Uh, and it has also an amount of money allocated to Mauritania with very little um, very little oversight, as far as we can tell. The deal is for 200 million euros transferred to Mauritania, and it's mainly from the alliance. And lo and behold, the left-wing government of Spain, which has been decrying abuses in other parts of the globe, uh, seems to be quite happy to make a deal with Mauritania. Uh, it's been really harshly criticized by most observers. Uh, for essentially a complete dereliction of power and oversight in terms of, you know, human rights and essentially the right of the right of potential immigrants. So once again, we see Europe uh, about to outsource uh, some of the most um, unsavory parts of the migration policy to a third country. Uh, as we know, the Tunisian deal more or less fell apart, uh, and there is a question as to whether the migration deal with Mauritania will actually uh, survive. The difference right now is that we have quite a few far-right parties having a, a lot of influence on the migration policy of Brussels. And that means that there are a lot more people um, sort of in the proximity of European power that would be interested in uh, protecting protecting the deal. What are you looking at this week, Bill? I'm just seeing the spread of protests, whether they be farmers or truckers, uh, kind of everyone taking from another country's playbook in the EU, in Germany, in France, now in Poland, uh, probably going to spread more. This has to do with a lot of things, it has to do with inflation, it has to do with subsidies, it has to do with 
uh, you know, tax breaks for farmers and for, uh, you know, and also with Ukraine, uh, Poland allowing Ukrainian truck drivers to access Poland without all the all the permits and the paperwork they usually need, causing competition, kind of the fears of causing a race to the bottom in terms of prices, in terms of uh, wages. That's Poland's big fear for as supportive as Poland has been uh, of Ukraine in its war with Russia. Uh, it's quite a different story when it comes to economic issues because Poland is the low-wage competitive player uh, to undercut Germany, France, other uh, Western European countries. Uh, but then what Poland is to those bigger, richer countries, Ukraine is to Poland. Uh, so it's a it's part of a much bigger chess game uh, when we talk about the future of Ukraine in the EU, uh, in terms of competitiveness, in terms of where do factories go to set up shop, where can they get their best deals? Uh, it really calls into question, uh, you know, how much of these countries are going to get a piece of the EU pie, uh, depending on the role, the relationship of Ukraine going forward. So that's kind of sparring, spurring all of these protests. And it's just interesting how they kind of mirror each other. Um, how they, like I said, they take from each other's playbooks and they have real political impact. You know, pol polit um, national political leaders are responsive, responding to these protests. Okay, well, the main story, much to my chagrin, because I don't like making uh, a former and maybe future president of the United States the main story just because he opens his big mouth, is... Uh, Donald Trump's recent comments on the campaign trail in the U.S. about uh, how he might handle NATO members uh, who aren't, in his view, or I should say, in also NATO's view, not uh, you know paying their way, their fair share uh, on defense spending. If NATO countries do not reach their 2% defense budget, then he would encourage Russia to attack those countries. Uh and so that has, of course, another ripple effect, another, uh, un you know, setting people off on the European side about what that really means for European security, for the future of NATO, should Donald Trump become president again, which is not an impossibility, as many people and many listeners of this podcast and readers of EU Observer know. He did say that he sees no reason for the U.S. to come to a member state's aid if attacked, basically the Article 5 commitment. Uh, if they haven't paid their fair share, which is the 2% of GDP, which it's always important to note is not a Donald Trump line. That is uh, uh, an agreement that came into force in 2014 under Barack Obama. Uh, Donald Trump is not unique among U.S. presidents for having issues with European partners not paying their fair share. It's just that Donald Trump, like most of the things he talks about, he talks about in a much more aggressive way than maybe uh, allies might prefer to be talked to. Um, so that, of course, is setting off a lot of alarm bells. But of course, those alarm bells are already going off and renews the debate about what, of course, the French love to think about in terms of uh, European sovereignty uh, when it comes to security. Martin, does this shock you at all? I mean, Donald Trump is being Donald Trump, right? Um, does it shock me? Um, yes. I mean, to some degree, it does. Um I think that the main reason why it does is because this is no longer um, 2019. We are sort of in a very different, much, much more dangerous um, political context and geopolitical context. It's worth saying that the latest line was actually 
uh, uttered during a campaign stop uh, in South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, where people have really very little interest in geopolitics by and large. That's not sort of essentially a voting public that would um, base its 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 choice on NATO or you know European uh, security. But nonetheless, I mean, it was sort of dispensed with the usual Trumpian gusto, uh, I would say, and of course. Uh, the sense was that it was a message sent uh, across the Atlantic. Um, so, yes, I mean, it did to some degree shock me. Um, but I think that the overarching feeling um, is that the danger uh, for European stability uh, increases day by day. I mean, the first line where he said, you know, why should we come to your aid if you're not pulling your weight? You could almost make a, you know, you could, that's almost reasonable, right? Um, but the second line about actually actively encouraging a, a Russian attack or an ally, or at least would would see no problem with it, that's a, a scarier line uh, for, for, I think, all people involved. I mean, it just really rattles, in a very real way, um, security and stability and containing what is already... Uh, a dangerous war in Ukraine has been so destructive to Ukraine at so many levels. And, you know, you mentioned how, you know, it's not 2019 anymore. And just to add to that, we don't have Donald Trump yet back as president. And already the United States is struggling to maintain its security commitments just by having Trump, you know, little Trumps, Trump-like people uh, in Congress who uh, have been holding up the Ukraine funding basically holding it hostage to getting what they want on the U.S.-Mexico border. So we don't even need Donald Trump in the White House to already be sort of shaking some, you know, basically the credibility of the United States when it comes to its security commitments to Europe and confronting Russian aggression in Ukraine. I think you have a variety of issues that sort of sit directly in front of us. The first one is the fact that we are now seeing essentially what I would call enemies of the European project. Um to the East, where we have seen them for a while, uh, actively engage in undermining, you know, European integrity. We might have a return of a foe to Europe, to the West, so in the White House, I mean. And then the added element is that in June, we might actually see a lot of actors within the European Union that are both ideologically and politically aligned uh, with Trump and with Russia uh, operating uh, not only at national levels where they have been, I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, Meloni uh, might be politically very savvy and might be moving to the center, but she's ideologically still singing the song of Putin, uh, very reactionary conservatism, and it's still pushing public policy. So we might see actually the kind of perfect storm, uh, which rather than a perfect storm is actually probably a very long game strategic design, um, which would put Europe under, I think, an amount of strain that I cannot really see uh, how it would overcome. To add to this, we are now in a geostrategic situation uh, which has seen nothing but the multiplication of very, very dangerous conflicts uh, fronts, including now the Middle East, including sort of sporadic, sporadic flare-ups in different parts of the Red Sea, uh, including now Sudan, where we hear that actually the Russians m might be about to start building a base, uh, including the Caucasus, where you are also seeing sort of on and off 
uh, confrontations. Um, and it's very difficult to see, I would say, that a Europe that does not really have uh, anything other than words in terms of strategic and defense autonomy would fare left to its own devices by the U.S. It's not so much how much to believe Donald Trump. You know, it's always hard to know if he's serious, if he's literal, if it's just him posturing, if it's just him on a campaign stop, if it's just something that came to his mind. Because ultimately, Donald Trump is all about Donald Trump. He doesn't really have an ideology. Um, but what is so destabilizing about this is that the United States and its its massive military presence, depending how it's used and how it's postured, can be a force for aggression and can be a force for uh, widening conflict. But it can also rein in arms races and conflict because right now, you have European allies who for decades have relied on the U.S. for their defense, at least for the large part. And so they haven't needed to massively increase their militaries and to have aggressive foreign and security policies. And they haven't had to do any saber rattling. In that sense, the United States has kind of reined in an arms race or what we saw like before World War One, where countries were going crazy with their military expenditures. If the U.S. security commitments recede, then that makes countries like Poland, for example, much more nervous. And they might think, and as they already are, we need to beef up our militaries and we need to show Russia that we're serious. And if the U.S. says to a country like Poland, don't worry, we got your back as long as you don't make any offensive moves. If that goes away, then a country like Poland or the Baltics, although they're very small, might see it in their interest to be a little more aggressive and a little more offensive. And that tit for tat can be very destabilizing. And suddenly we can have a very widespread conflict on our hands in an era of nuclear weapons. So that to me is for me what's most worrying, not that the United States could actually wage a war, but the fact that the, that its deterrence will keep other countries from maybe getting into basically a death spiral of of, of arms procurement. I think that the volatility of the season um, is compounded by the fact that we're facing now an election in June that might actually append the entire architecture uh, of Brussels politics. Uh, and this actually is something that would compound in rather massive ways uh, a return to Trump on the other side of the Atlantic. One of the things that would actually be directly impacted by the coming election is the configuration of the European Commission, uh, right now being led by Queen Ursula, as she's uh, affectionately or sometimes not so affectionately known and there is sort of a question as to how the coming European Commission that wields a lot of power uh, will actually look to uh, get a better sense of what that might look like. We invited uh, Andrew Redman, who writes for the EU Observer and wrote a fantastic piece uh, in early February uh, on the top jobs and how they're going to be sliced up by European political powers uh, after June. So here we have with us Andrew Redman, uh, who writes for the EU Observer. And on February 6th, he wrote a, a piece on top jobs coming up uh, in the European Union in Brussels. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Hey, I'm very well. Thanks uh, for having me here today on your podcast. So um, the EPP has already, um, both in the Parliament and the Commission, started to gesture you know, a much more right-leaning agenda 
Um, do you see this translating into the European Commission? And I don't see that somehow. You know, like the the rise of the far right has been foretold the 20 years that I've been doing this job, but they never really arrived. You know, we had Le Pen almost winning the French presidency once we thought she got the second round. And I'm so sort of, I don't think that they're going to arrive like an earthquake after these elections, despite what polls say. Now, especially if, um, if von der Leyen stays in the commission post, she'll be in her second term, which will make her a little bit more politically independent, no matter what happens in the parliament. And, you know, I also think there are, there are figures that the far right would need in order to gain some kind of upper hand in Brussels whose uh, future is still like up in the air. I'm thinking especially about Maloney. Is she really going to carry Orban on her back for the rest of her political career? Or does she want to join the club of serious Atlantic players, you know, transatlantic players? In which case, um, I don't think that the far right is going to pull either the commission or the parliament off the rails into some really weird direction. Yeah, I, I tend to I tend to agree with that assessment, um, whether also in the US, uh, across Europe, at the national level or the European level, we always hear that this is sort of the end of centrist politics as we know it and the far right is coming. The, the results always seem to be a little bit less bad than the pessimists fear and a little and not as good as the optimists hope. Still, there is, if polls are to be believed, there is going to be uh, some significant wins for far-right parties across the European Union uh, for the European Parliament elections, even if it's not big enough to really take over anything, is there still that risk of be playing that spoiler role, pulling sort of centrist, as we've seen at national levels in many places, pulling centrist politicians, centrist policies more to the right? And that's not only migration, it's environment, it's agriculture, uh, it's, a, it's a number of major issues that the EU deals with. Well, for me, the worst thing about the far right so far as I've experienced them in the European Parliament is have to bloody well listen to them when they get up and speak about serious issues, you know? And when we're talking about top jobs here, rather than the broader political drift in Europe after these elections, I just don't think that the far right or the kind of Orban camp, that end of the spectrum down, has any credible personalities they could put forth to race. Certainly not as Parliament president which is the, the least valuable of the four cop jobs. I mean, have you guys heard of anybody out of that um, basket of snakes that could seriously get yeah. candidate for an international post of that calendar? To get back to the top top job question, which is what we want to sort of start with here, um, can you kind of go through, I don't want to get lost in you know the who's who. Uh, just go through with us some of the, what are those top positions and what potential influence do they really have in the direction that the European Union takes? Okay. Well, the European Commission presidency is definitely the most powerful and, and prestigious role. Uh, the commission um, collects and spends all the EU's money and drafts all the EU's legislation. So it, it has the most most power in that sense. And then in protocol terms, you've got the EU Council presidency. Um, it's very high because they meet with uh, foreign presidents and, and VIPs and they chair EU Council meetings and, and set EU Council agendas. So there's a, a high-profile role there, some kind of political steering. Um, the European Parliament president is more a sort of spokesperson for the Assembly, but can also help set the agenda, plenary sessions, and, and speed along voting on certain dossiers that uh, 
that they're interested in. So the, the more it co-legislates, like the more important it becomes in Brussels. And then at the next level, you have the um, the head of the EU External Action Service, currently filled by the Spaniard Plaza Forel that you've seen flying all, all over the world talk about Gaza recently. Um, that's become much more uh, important because there are so many more conflicts in, in the neighborhood now. Uh, so that that position is a sort of firefighter, international firefighter, um, is is the fourth one in the race. That's what that's what people are going for. Do you have any any picks? I mean, do you have any thoughts as to how those four are going to fall? Um, I would. Uh, I think the most predictable one is, as we said, von der Leyen staying where she is, and then. Um, maybe getting Kalas in for the foreign policy post because I think we need an Eastern European in right now, especially as we've already referred a little bit to some of the worries around NATO and after Donald Trump's insane comments, but also before. So I think in order to reassure some of the Eastern member states of the EU as well as NATO, a defense or foreign policy-oriented post for them would go down great. And in the council, I would like to see Mario Draghi personally. He seems to be this sort of sedic pair of hands, even though he maybe lacks charisma or works behind the scenes. But especially if we're going to go for treaty reform and enlargement, it would be good to have a sort of the almost uh, technocratic uh, and highly competent figure uh, at the heart of things politically, especially in the councils. Yeah, of course, Mario Draghi was also the the man famous for saying whatever it takes in terms of saving the euro and is uh, somewhat credited with keeping the euro afloat in those crisis years in the early 2010s. Uh, so as you say, he's a quite a known quantity uh, at the EU level. But I'm glad you brought up the foreign policy aspect, which is your, which is really your beat at the EU Observer, and the most recent Trump comments uh, about uh, the US vis-a-vis -vis NATO. I just thought maybe we can get into that a little bit more. Uh, what is sort of the EU? What have you been hearing is the, the EU foreign policy response to Trump's latest comments? Oh, uh, well, there is no such thing. I mean, they, they, they're going to probably be um, asked about it in the midday briefing at the European Commission today, or have been at this uh, maybe so an hour ago since we went on on, um, uh, on street here. But at the end of the day, that they don't, they're not going to be in the business of commenting on unhinged remarks by this very strange and divisive character on the other side. It will be still say it's odd. They don't want to interfere in the elections. They don't comment on comments. They just want to stay away from that and hope that it was just some kind of uh, crazy piece of rhetoric, you know, that his mouth just ran away with itself rather than some line that he's actually going to pursue and work with. Like if he repeats it three times, that I guess that you was going to have to um, see that the Sandman's really coming, say something about it. There is, I mean, there has been quite a bit of expression of concern across European capitals, right? That this could really become um, essentially the next White House. And I wonder in what way does this actually, perhaps even in the background, uh, helps to emphasize the certain concern as we're seeing, okay, fine, it might be true that we don't see a full far right wave um, but there, it's also true that we might actually see in the European Parliament quite a few people that are ideologically and perhaps even politically aligned with Trump you now saying really remarkable things about NATO. I mean, 
I just don't think that even though Trump's remarks caused the ripple of commentary by Stoltenberg and the others over the weekend, I don't think they changed anything. You know, he said mental things when he was president, when he was commander in chief, or shortly before he was elected commander in chief, the first time he was urging the Russians to hack his uh, his own country's elections. You know, and then he was he had this bizarre love affair with Kim Jong Un. He he used to text nonsense in the middle of the night. There's no point in framing policy around something the guy says. And I think that right now it's business as usual to make though. I mean, I don't think that the tripwire forces on the Estonian-Russian border are like, um, I mean, they've probably been discussing this on the campfire, but I don't think it changes anything about the, the state of readiness or what the generals are discussing at the NATO uh, council with Ukraine and the defense ministers meeting this week. I mean, we it, it it might well be the case that you know we do not have uh, enough cloud uh, in a far right in a far right um, and or a far right wave, but we already have seen things like uh, you know Oliver Verhali from essentially affiliated with Fidesz, uh, who almost incomprehensibly one would say got under the von der Leyen Neighborhood Enlargement Commission. Um, so there is already a precedent for a party that is essentially not really even part of the main, you know, political muscle of the EU to get gifts and appeasement uh, offerings uh, in the commission. I mean, is this something that you think it's at all possible with Meloni sort of straying towards the center with, you know, uh, the the Rassemblement National in, in France essentially now polling at 33% actually double the double the the numbers of of Macron and his uh lineup uh do you think that this is something that we could see that essentially just uh, the 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 next von der Leyen commission if that's what comes offers the far right um a couple of gifts to keep them appeased um the the second tier top jobs in the EU uh, institutions have been have been given to um outlying parties also of course Poland got the agriculture portfolio which is very important to the Long Justice Party economically at home, potentially. One wonders uh, what the far right's uh, ideal commission portfolio would be. Obviously, migration, right? They already called it migration and protecting the European way of life last time, which was an embarrassment. And Margarita Skinas uh, could quite comfortably, I mean, the current commissioner in that role from Greece, some of the things he says and some of the the, the attitudes he has toward migrants would already belong with the far right, if you ask me. So perhaps that would be a portfolio that they would take, which would be a sad day for Europe, you know, to give uh, to give these people control of the budgets and and daily security of of victims trying to cross uh, the sea to get to Europe. Do you think that there is any possibility of kind of resistance within the EPP? To, to giving these offerings or to making these alliances? I hope so, but I don't know that the EP uh, and the Tickle landscape well enough to say it might really stand up for, uh, you know, for that creating this kind of cordial sanitaire around. I normally in the parliament you rely on uh, Nordic MEPs, you rely, you can usually count on the Greens, the Liberals, you know, the Socialists to some extent, take more kind of values-driven action, keep people out. Among the ADP, I find a little bit more um, difficult to read. And uh, 
I don't see any any clear sort of knight in shining armor there who's going to save the EVP from waivers, mediocrity, and kind of deal making um, inclinations uh, and the temptation to at least I I would see Maloney going in with them. I'd like to see Maloney going in with them and then just leaving um, Orban and Morawiecki alone in the in the ECR. I think that would be a nice scenario, you know, to absorb. Um, a, a leader who has a far right past, but who seems to be crafting a new political vector for herself, and then just just leave the losers in the ECR. I don't see why they why we necessarily have to think that they're going to get something out of this. Andrew, I'm curious. You mentioned very briefly about when we were got, kind of going through some of the some of the names of who potential candidates could be for some of these top jobs, and you mentioned. Uh, Kalas, the Prime Minister of Estonia, need like the importance of the Baltics. Yeah. Can you give me uh, a view of what role might the Baltics, Poland, even the Nordics um, be playing in a future European Union and European Commission, given sort of the new security uh, situation vis-a-vis Russia, Sweden and uh, Finland, part of NATO, uh, and a lot of these Eastern European countries kind of a big I told you so about Russia to some of the, the Western European countries. Yeah, I think the, the credibility has risen in that sense, just to pick up on what you said at the end. Um, I think obviously the uh, return of Tusk to Poland is huge in terms of that whole region's profile uh, in Brussels, you know, going forward and EU summits going forward. Um, but specifically in, in terms of... Um, uh, candidates for EU top jobs because they have to get someone, I think, this time around, right? They've been overlooked and overlooked and overlooked. Now uh, they're on the front line. Now their credibility is higher than ever. I think um, Shiporsky is somebody that I'd love to put forward. And I know that Poles love him, even though he's been caught in wiretap scandals, turning the air blue in some restaurant, even though he's shot his mouth about Germany in the past. Um, I think he will be somebody that the, that, that the region would get behind, but that Brussels couldn't. So I think that Kalas is maybe the best compromise candidate I could think of. And I've been in press briefings with her. She can say um, lacerating things with great charm, you know, about the way that Orban backtracks and summits and two-faces the media and so forth. She can slit your throat with a smile. So even though she doesn't have... Um, maybe some of the, the weight of the Polish candidate, like Sikorski, I think she's reading from the same playbook anyway, and the region could get behind her. Andrew, thank you very much. So many thanks to Andrew Redman for joining us, uh, EU foreign policy reporter for the EU Observer, giving us lots of details on both what the next European Union, European Commission might look like, as well as some views on what security policy and foreign affairs might look like, especially in the potential of a return of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States. If you want to get a lot more details, a lot more nitty gritty about the who's who of the European Union or potential who's who, you should definitely go to euobserver.com and check out Andrew's latest piece or latest pieces. So that was that's what's going on now. Let's look ahead to the week to come. Martin, what's on your radar? So the main issue right ahead um, is Gaza, where we have seen the slaughter of thousands uh, of civilians. Uh, and now we have the Israeli government promising a ground operation 
uh, in Rafah, in the very south of the Gaza Strip, where 1,500,000 people, more or less, are sheltering uh, internally displaced people. And by most accounts, um, the, such operation would cause a massive amount of death among the civilian population. Um, it has produced very strong reactions, even from the White House, the European Union. Even from the Germans. Well, I was going to say, European governments, as usual, have been a lot more timid and a lot slower to react. Uh, but I think that what we're seeing now, which really begins to look like um, a potential for a massive, massive uh, catastrophe and possibly war crimes uh, in the making, uh, might actually completely change uh, the shape of the conflict and might actually really force international community, including the most timid of European governments, uh, to reassess its relation with the Israeli government and really try to push them uh, into a, an unconditional ceasefire, which is what many had been demanding. Um, this is really not a matter of the week ahead. This is possibly a matter of hours. Uh, and I think that this is actually a very, very big story. Well, I think, you know, however, it is a matter of hours, but also of weeks. However, it looks now, by the time we talk again, it's going to be a completely different picture. Um, given the pace of events. But on that note, uh, I will be heading to the Munich Security Conference uh, later this week, uh, the annual uh, sh shoulder rubbing, elbow rubbing, uh, whatever the expression is, of elites in the Western security order. Uh, that's basically what it is, uh, high-level delegations from you know all around the world, but specifically the United States and, and, and the Western community, talking about security in the world. Uh, of course, that is very much an eye of the beholder kind of thing, especially with wars ongoing in Ukraine and, as you mentioned, developments in Gaza. Um, but all eyes will be on Munich this coming weekend. And I'll be there. So next week when we talk, hopefully I can give you an update on what I heard and saw and who I talked to. Been lovely seeing you again. Uh, we shall talk in a week from now. Uh, and once again, we invite all our viewers, listeners, I mean, uh, to subscribe to our podcast, to listen to us, uh, as you like to say, wherever their ears take them. Um, and um, yeah, we invite them also to actually browse attentively through the EU Observer set of articles uh, for anybody interested in European politics. Uh, um, so until next week, I'm William Blickroft. And I'm Martin Guck. Thanks so much. Thank you.